0: we're a church who likes to preach through books of the Bible more often than we do topical series, although if you have been with us recently, you know that we just finished a topical series on the the idea of generosity, God's generous toward us as a people, and that influences how we express generosity toward other people, but the reason that we tend to and like to preach through books of the Bible, line by line, chapter by chapter, verse by verse— is because it causes us as a church family to look at and address topics and themes that God speaks to in his word, that God cares about in his word, that if we just jump from topic to topic, we may go five years, six years, seven years, and, and never address. And as his people and as his church, we want to be people who know his word and care about the things that God says about in his word. So that's one of the reasons we do that. It helps us to remain grounded in the Word and helps us to know our Bibles. I don't know the last time you studied the book of Colossians, but when we as a church decide to do something like this, it helps you go, okay, the Lord's given us this, this letter from the Apostle Paul, and I understand this now, and I understand how it fits inside the narrative of Scripture, and I understand what the Lord wants to say to me through it. So that's a good discipline and exercise for us. It also helps us when we go through Old Testament books and New Testament books to be able to showcase how Jesus is the centerpiece of Scripture. He's not just a guy who shows up on the scene in the book of Matthew, but all of redemption history is a story proclaiming Jesus. And so the Old Testament speaks of him as one who is forthcoming. And the New Testament shows us Jesus in the flesh and then talks about the impact of his revelation by God to us as people, and I could go on and on. And so this morning, as we begin a study on the book of Colossians, we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna jump in and we're gonna benefit from those very reasons why we study through a book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, as a church. And this morning, my goal is for us to, to unpack and understand just a little bit of the, the context for why God gave us this letter, why of all the things that, that could have been ordained by the Spirit that, that he would choose this letter that Paul wrote to the Colossians and what the context for it is and, and why it was written. And then we'll actually jump in and we'll look at the first few verses together or so this morning. But before we do that, quick show of hands, how many of you have ever been to a fusion restaurant? Some of you are like, I've been, maybe I have. I have no idea what a fusion restaurant is. Well, let me tell you what a fusion restaurant is. A fusion restaurant is a restaurant where you take two unique styles of cooking or two cultures and you merge them together to create dishes or meals that are unlike anything you would traditionally find elsewhere. You're like, that's Chili's, bro. You can get a steak. You can get a burger. You can get, okay, no. So So a fusion restaurant is where you specifically create things that you can't find anywhere else. And there's only certain ones that this works for, right? Like Cajun and Indian food. No one is doing that, right? No one wants to go to that restaurant. Curry in your crawfish etouffee is a no-go, okay? So um, when Sheridan and I were newly married, we were were 21. We were in college. We knew nothing. Um, I'm convinced we still don't know anything, even though we're not 21 anymore. Uh, We're still in college. We're working multiple jobs just to make ends meet. And we didn't have a lot of money in the budget for date nights. And so a date night for us was, hey, let's cook in and do something other than ramen or mac and cheese. Or, hey, let's go out to a restaurant, but we've got enough money to split a meal. So let's get waters and and split something. Uh, And, you know, it was like going to Chili's or Whataburger or something like that. Um, Or uh, we would decide that we really wanted to splurge And we would set aside money in the budget and we would go out for a real date night. And so when we lived in Stafford at the age of 21 and we wanted to go spend money on a real date night, we went to a restaurant called Japaneros, which was a fusion of sushi and Latin food. So you'd get sushi rolls that had Latin food in them. You'd have like an empanada sushi roll Or you'd get your sushi roll and they'd give you an order of plantains alongside of them. And it was delicious. It was great. We would go there all the time on special date nights. Um, And I find it incredibly ironic, right, that they chose to pair Latin food and sushi together because Sheridan and I have a running joke in our family, which is that if you go out for sushi on a date night, it's a really expensive way to need to go and get tacos two hours later because there's never enough food. You never get enough sushi. You're always going to be hungry in two hours, so you may as well just go ahead and get, get tacos two hours later. Interestingly, when we moved to Austin, shortly after we first got married, we were really jazzed when we found this, this little hole-in-the-wall restaurant just outside of our neighborhood called Sushi Caliente, which was sushi and Mexican food, so you could go ahead and just order the taco up front, right? I mean, like, they'd bring you the check, and would be like, do you want a taco with that? Like, you know. You know what? Yeah, of course I do. Just go ahead and bring me the taco, right? So... Um, Fusion restaurants are a really cool concept, and they work, right, when you have two cuisines, two cultures, two styles that you can bring together harmoniously, even if not naturally, to create a pairing that does something really extraordinary, right? And this is, this is not just in, in food, You see fusion of of styles across the board. You see it in movies and television. If you're a Star Wars fan and you've watched Mandalorian, that's a Western space fusion mixture together. I could go on and give you other examples. Hairstyles, mullets are back, right? Business in the front, party in the back. It's a fusion of hairstyles, decorating styles. You can mix things together. You've got your farmhouse and your rustic. You've got your mid-century and your modern. You can pull all of these things together, right? But does fusion work for matters of faith? Does fusion work for matters of faith? Is there a way to fuse the best of belief together into one final product that is still palatable and faithful? Is that something that we should even consider? As we look to the book of Colossians this morning, we will see that the answer from the Bible is a resounding no. It's a resounding no. There is a truth that you cannot adulterate. There is a gospel message which does not have room for things outside of the bounds of what it contains. And anyone who tries to mix those things together is in grave danger of missing the big picture. So let's zoom out then. And and begin to try to understand if if that's one of the the things that we're going to see here in the book of Colossians, let's zoom out and see what this mixing of beliefs is and how that influences this letter to be written and then what we will overall see in the book of Colossians. Anytime we come to a, a book that Paul wrote, it's helpful for us as a church to consider whether or not it's spoken to in the book of Acts, Acts, which we studied as a church a number of years ago chronicles life in the early church it largely focuses on the ministry of Paul and so if Paul is writing a letter it's helpful for us to see where there's overlap and so if you look in the book of Acts what you'll see if you've studied it is that the Apostle Paul is traveling all over the the Roman Empire sharing the gospel he starts out in the region of Galatia he goes to Philippi he goes to cities like Thessalonica and Corinth and Athens and other cities And so when we look at the letters that Paul writes in the New Testament, a vast majority of them are to the churches in the cities that Paul visited. That's why you've got 1 Corinthians. He went to Corinth. You've got 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. He went to Thessaloniki. He went to Philippi. So you've got Philippians. He went to the region of Galatia. You've got Galatians. So that's where these letters come from. And when he's writing to them, he knows these people. He's been with these people He's been a part of them coming to know Jesus. And so he's writing them to encourage them or to thank them or to give them instruction on something. And so on the third journey that Paul took in the book of Acts, we see something that, that he's never done before, which is that he goes to the city of Ephesus. And instead of popping around city to city like he had historically done, he goes to the city of Ephesus and he actually camps out there for three full years And you can probably see it here on the map slide. You've got Ephesus up there. You can see some of these other cities as well. And little inset, you can see Ephesus, and you can see some of these other cities around it. And what's happening during this time that Paul is in Ephesus is that people from all over this area of Asia Minor are coming to Ephesus. It's kind of a hub city. It's kind of the, you know, if you you live in or or around the Houston area and you go anywhere else and you tell people where you live, they don't understand where Magnolia is, but you say, I'm from the Houston area, right? And they go, okay, got it. I understand where that is. Ephesus is kind of the the Houston of that area. It's where people came for commerce. It's where people came for worship. It's where people came for trade. And so as people are, are doing that, as they're coming to this region, they're encountering Paul. They're encountering the other believers there and they're coming to faith in Jesus. And what's happening from that is that people are understanding the gospel, they're coming to faith in Christ and then they're leaving and they're going back to the cities from which they came. And evidently, as we look at scripture, that's how this church in Colossae, which you see up there, got started. If you look in Colossians Chapter 1, verse 7, Paul's talking about the gospel going out into all the world. And he says that the Colossians learned about it from a man named Epaphras. Epaphras was apparently a church planter. He was a faithful gospel believer. And so not just Colossae, but if you look in in Colossians chapter 4, verse 13, we see Paul's testifying about Epaphras. And he says, hey, he didn't just labor for you, Colossians, he didn't just work for the gospel in your city, he also went to the cities of Laodicea and Hierapolis as well, which were neighboring cities. They were all kind of in this Lycus River Valley in present-day Turkey. And so, Epaphras is this guy who comes to faith in Jesus, understands the gospel, it says, man, I got to go back and tell everybody in my city about this. And so he goes back and he preaches the gospel and people come to faith and he organizes them and they begin to gather together and, and worship and, and study and learn about Jesus. And they from there go out to cities around them and say, hey, there's this thing you need to know. It's true about who you are, about who God is, about how all this fits together And churches are planted, and people are coming to faith, and the gospel is being proclaimed. And so, as mentioned earlier, even though many of Paul's letters are written to churches and cities where he personally went to and shared the gospel, when we look in Colossians, if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, Paul's going to say there that he's struggling for the Colossians, yearning for them, and for those in Laodicea, Laodicea, and for all those who have not seen me face to face. So many people, as, as we can consider these things and you pull them together, believe Paul doesn't know this church in Colossae. He's never been there before. He never went out from Ephesus to go and visit them. Surely he knows Epaphras. Surely he knows some people from that church, but he's not writing a, a letter to a bunch of people who he sat down and broke bread with. He's not writing a letter to people whose church he was instrumental in helping start. He's not writing a letter to, to friends and, and people that he personally led to faith. This is an extension of faithful gospel ministry that, that Paul has had through the life of a man named Epaphras. And so what that should do as, a, as a, a student of the word, as we want to be, is it should cause us to sit back and say, okay, well, then why did Paul write this letter? This is one of only two letters we know of that, that Paul wrote to a, a church that he hadn't personally been to. The other was Romans, which we just finished reading, and Paul wrote him that letter because he said, hey, I'm about to come to you. I'm about to come visit you, and so I want to make sure before I come that you understand the gospel message that I've proclaimed. So why is it that Paul writes this letter to this tiny church? In Colossae. Well, shortly after Paul spends those three years in Ephesus, he gets on a ship, he goes to Jerusalem, and when he's in Jerusalem, he's arrested, and he's tried, and while he's sitting there in trial, in Jewish courts, he appeals his case to Caesar, and at that moment, there's zero jurisdiction from the Jewish courts for him. He waits, he gets put on a ship, and Paul heads to Rome, where he is going to stay in house arrest until he awaits his day in court. This is late 50s AD, early 60s AD. Paul is now in Rome. He's under house arrest. He's waiting to be tried in Rome. And what's happening with Paul is as he is sitting there in Rome, he's receiving updates from churches. People are coming to visit him which is great. It's not like he can't have people come and sit with him and eat with him and visit with him. So he's sitting there and he's receiving updates from churches and he's writing letters to other people. And one day, Epaphras shows up in Rome. I'm sure Paul was happy to see him. But Epaphras comes to Rome from Colossae and after greeting Paul and doing fist bumps or handshakes or you know, whatever was customary in that day, he says, hey, Paul, I need to tell you some pretty disturbing news. I need to tell you some pretty disturbing news, Paul, about what's going on in my church and in the churches around Colossae that I am trying to faithfully minister to. Paul, the churches in our area are struggling with a really false and dangerous teaching. People in and outside of the church are trying to argue against Christ trying to say that we have to follow these extra rules in order to really be a believer in Jesus. They're mixing all kinds of weird things into the truth, and I don't know what to do. I, I don't know what to say. I don't, I don't know how to respond. I, I need you to speak into this as only you can and, and try to help clear things up. Would you encourage my people? Would you encourage the flock in the Lycus River Valley? Would you help them understand How dangerous and and false these things that are being introduced are. And if you're Paul, and if you're Epaphras, this isn't coming as a surprise to you. You look at Colossae, you look at this region, and and, and church, this this is a melting pot of people that live in Colossae, both because of its location in the Roman Empire. If you know your history, the Roman Empire built roads so that they could transport troops around easily, and major roads that connected the eastern parts and western parts of the empire ran through this area, and so there's a lot of foot traffic going through this area, and where there's foot traffic, there's people who stick and, and stay and just never left and went anywhere else, but also every major empire if you look at history for the last five to 600 years, has had to go through this area to expand and conquer new lands. And as they do so, they leave culture and they leave people and they leave religion and they leave different elements of, of who they are. And so you've got Greeks in this area and Greeks have their philosophies and their wisdom and their traditions. You've got a massive community of Jews living in Colossae unorthodox Jews. They were exported there underneath Roman rule. Rome said, we're going to take a bunch of you, we're going to stick you in Colossae. And so they're bringing in Old Testament traditions to this area as part of their religious mixture that they're adding in. You've got locals who've been there for forever, who've got their folk tradition, their folk religion that's about angels and about different gods and about nature and about the world around them. And you've got polytheism, which is rampant in the world. And all these people are living in this tiny area of Colossae with all of these different religious experiences. And then you plop the gospel in. And you've got people who are faithfully holding to that. And you've got people who have this long history of understanding about who God is and, and how that works, who now have been exposed to the gospel. And they're trying to figure out how to make sense of these two things. And so the flavor of the day in the Colossian church was people experiencing these kinds of realities where they would say it's okay to be a Christian but because of the Jewish bent you've also got to follow these Old Testament rituals as well there's these festivals there's these rules about circumcision that you've you've got to follow so it's okay to like Jesus but you also have to like all of these Old Testament rules as well or you have people who would say it's it's okay to be a Christian but you have to understand that the gods are so high above us that any interaction that we have with them would be absolutely futile. But what we can do is we can worship the divine by worshiping angels, created heavenly beings. That's our, that's our ticket to worship God is, is we're, we won't worship God directly. We've got to worship these things that are like God because God is too far beyond us to, to ever worship and so we'll worship the angels instead. And, and because of that, because the gods are so high above us, there's no way that if Christ actually came to earth like you say he did, that he could have been a deity or he could have been a god because they're so high above us that it would have been impossible for a god to come in, in human flesh. So maybe he was an apparition. Maybe he was an angel. Maybe he was just a good teacher. But he certainly wasn't god. That doesn't fit. Can't believe that. So it's fine to be a Christian, and and accept these moral things that Jesus taught, but, but he can't really be God. Or maybe in the area, one of the, the mixtures of these religions is that they understood at the time that true religion understands that as people we're unworthy. And so our response to that is that we've got to act really holy. We've got to do things to prove ourselves to God. Or they believe kind of an early stage of of Gnosticism that that Jesus can't be God because physical things are evil. And if he came in the flesh, then he's evil. So he can't truly have been a a real manifestation in the flesh of God. And so these are the kinds of of common challenges that you see to Christ in the early church. But in the the city of Colossae, they're all there at the same time. Can you imagine how incredibly confusing that would be? I mean, imagine that as a believer, you're in that environment. You don't have a a printed Bible. You don't have five of these sitting on your shelves at home like we do. You have the the gospel that's been presented to you by Epaphras. You've got the testimony of the Old Testament. You're beginning to have letters from Paul circulated among these churches. But you don't have an ability to go and, and fact check it and go, no, that's not true. That's not true. I, I hear your convincing argument, sir, madam, but that's not in line with what I understood to be true about Jesus. And so we'll see and we'll discuss as we study through Colossians later on this summer, we'll discuss the specifics of these false teachings and how they were impacting the church. And, but but the, the, the false doctrines and these false teachings were just pervasive and it got to the point where the church was mixing in their own bent of these beliefs with the gospel, and they're trying to convince others of it. And so there ended up being this really confusing syncretism and fusion of beliefs that is totally at odds with the gospel message. And so you can imagine Paul hearing this from Epaphras. You imagine Paul. You think about Paul. You think about what you've read of Paul in the scriptures. His heart for these people just breaking because he loves Jesus. Jesus. And he loves the truth about Jesus and he hates that people are being led astray. And so he pens this letter, not just to say the things that we'll see later on in chapter two, where he calls these things out directly, where he says things like, don't be led astray by, by hollow philosophies. Don't let anyone judge you by whether or not you follow a new moon festival or, or judge you by your food or your drink and, and don't fall into the pit of this self-made religious practice and asceticism, but he writes not only to say those things, he also writes to rightly orient them to the truth. I'm not just gonna defend the gospel against the things that are out there. I'm gonna give you the ammunition you need, church and Colossae, to understand why all of this matters in the first place. And so he'll say in chapter one that Jesus is supreme over all things. He'll say in him the fullness of deity dwells. The fullness of deity is present in Jesus. He isn't an accessory to the game, he is the game. He's gonna say everything that we know and that we see and that we smell and that we touch, everything you can conceive of is being held together by the power of his command. There's nothing that transpires that is outside of the scope of Jesus. So you can take that to the bank as you, as you wrestle with these false doctrines colossians he'll remind them to cling to the gospel truth that they heard and remind them that there's hope and there's redemption in the gospel of jesus that is satisfying to the soul and and that is powerful for day to day and and powerful against arguments he'll say cling to that hope that you heard we remind you of what that is he's going to tell them set your mind on things above Stop looking out around you, trying to make sense of this world and figuring out how to cozy up with the things that are around you. Set your mind on the things above. You're not called to be a lover of this world. Focus on your attitudes and your behaviors and your actions beyond looking first to Christ who empowers and informs all of those things. He'll say, be changed in the inner man, in the inner person. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Give glory to God. That's what you've been called to. Paul will write and remind them, and remind us there isn't room to muddy the waters or mix beliefs together because it only distracts us from the obvious truth and the clear truth that Jesus himself is the prize. He's the prize. He's the hope. He's the mystery of God now revealed. You're not gonna find answers and joy and hope and satisfaction and contentment and purpose in some version of religion that looks like a sprinkle of Jesus on top of the philosophies and the wisdom and the ideals of mankind and the world around you. It wasn't true then, it's not true now. And line by line, we'll see that play out as we read through this book together this summer. And so that's, that's Colossians in a nutshell. That's where we're going, that's what we're gonna see. And I'm so excited for us to do that together because how desperately do I know I need to be reminded of those very things? How much do we as a church need to be reminded of the supremacy of Jesus over all things, especially in a day and age where it's so easy to make him an accessory to life instead of the very basis for every ounce of living that we do? And So let's briefly this morning in the time that we have left together, turn our attention to Colossians chapter 1 with that little bit of context in the background. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at Paul's greeting and his introduction in verses 1 through 8 this morning. So if you want to take a look at verse 1 there, we'll go ahead and start. We'll read through verses 1 through 5. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colosse, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. A couple key things for us to look at here in these first five verses. This is a pretty standard way if you read through your Bible and you look at Paul's letters, it's a pretty standard way in which the Apostle Paul begins a letter. He says, hi, it's Paul. Just so you know, and we're all clear, Jesus is the one who's called me to the work that I've been given. This ultimately begins with Him, not just a guy. I'm not just writing you and, and trying to share my opinion with you. Any authority that I have as an apostle ultimately comes from the fact that I was first saved by Jesus and ordained by Jesus to this work of ministry. It's about him. It's always been about him. It's not about me. Don't make me a celebrity. Don't ascribe to me more worth than I am due. This is ultimately about Jesus so let's clear that up from the very beginning. And it will say, here's who's with me. Timothy is riding shotgun this letter. He's hanging out. Timothy was a pastor in Ephesus. And so many people likely who had come from Colossae to Ephesus would know Timothy, would be aware of him as well. And so it'd be comfort to them that these two men who would labored together for, for many of the people, who went to the church in Colossae were were present at the writing of this letter. And then he ends with a very common ending phrase for introduction, grace to you, which if you were a Greek, that was a very common Greek greeting, grace to you. But as Christians, there's a new meaning imbued in that. So we understand God's grace to us. Grace to you and peace, which is a standard Hebrew greeting mixture of those things serves as a reminder to us as a church that the covenant community of God's people is both Jew and Gentile. spans history. For the church in Colossae, which we know, because of the Jewish population that was there, was also a mixture of Jew and Greek. So as a reminder to them that the dividing line of hostilities we read in the book of Ephesians that used to exist between the two in Christ have become one. It's no longer a dividing line between the two. They exist peacefully in Christ, in one new man, unified by Jesus himself. So Paul greets them, and then he gives thanks. Look back at verse 3. He says, we thank God. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith and the love you have for all the saints. Now, I want you to notice something here. I want you to notice what Paul does not say. Paul does not say, thank you, Colossians. Thank you, Colossians, for your faith. Thank you, Colossians, for being so loving toward the saints in Jesus. Why does he do that? Why does he thank God instead? I want to submit to you this morning that it's because Paul ultimately knows something that is true for them as it is true for us, which is that any goodness or faithfulness, or praiseworthy things that come from the people of God are ultimately and firstly a representation of the praiseworthy things that come from God who saved us and called us to be his people. Any goodness that, that we exude, anything that flows from us out into the world that smells like the aroma of Christ that blesses other people in this building and, and outside is ultimately not because we were smart enough or wise enough or holy enough to decide to do those things. It is because Christ first saved us and changed us and transformed our hearts so that we wanted to do things for the glory of God, to bless other people. It is ultimately a testimony about him and his miraculous work to overcome the sinful nature of our hearts, which surely, if you know people around you who don't know Jesus, are not ultimately always geared toward doing evil things or wrong things. We live in a world where people do nice things all the time, but if there's anything that is praiseworthy to God, That flows from us, it is ultimately because God first acted in our lives to bring those things about. That's why Paul will tell the Corinthian church, look, if I'm going to boast about anything, anything in my life which is praiseworthy or noteworthy or good, I'm not going to boast in those things. I'm going to boast in Jesus, and I'm going to boast in my weakness. That's why the, the hymn that we sing, new hymn that we sing in church, It's become part of the anthem of our our church collective body of songs we sing, how deep the Father's love. You know the the words. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom. I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. That's our hope as believers. Not that there's anything praiseworthy in us that, that we should be patted on the back for or boast in or be proud of but that ultimately we go, this is all ultimately about Jesus. This began with him, it continues with him, and it will end with him. As long as I'm breathing, my life is a testimony to his work in my life. And so that doesn't mean that we end up being a doormat for people, or if someone comes up to you and, and genuinely thanks you for being faithful to love or to care for them that you just slough it off or you have some kind of false humility or you downplay things. I mean you've probably experienced that before you serve someone or you know someone you know or someone serves you or blesses you or something like that and, and you thank them and they go, oh it was nothing. Oh I'm just I'm just doing what I'm called to do. You do the same for me. Like I'm not saying that right I'm saying instead of those things we say praise God. It was a blessing to you praise God. That served you In Jesus, praise God. That ministered to you, praise Jesus. I'm not bent to do that. In my sinful nature, I want to be about myself. I want to be about what I want. I want to do what Chris wants to do. I want to serve my own interests. So if I'm serving Jesus and it blesses you, that's ultimately a reflection of his character working to redeem what is broken and lost in me. It is his spirit at work in my life. So praise God. Praise God for that. I'm so glad. It's all ultimately a reflection of him, so we can't get puffed up in our minds and take credit or make it about ourselves. It's an opportunity for us to remember that God saved us from our sin, that we might glorify him and serve others with the love of Christ. So what is it then, if we look back at verse three and four, that Paul specifically gives thanks to God for? He thanks God for the faith that the Colossians have, which is a gift from God, and the love that they have toward all the saints. I want to talk about love for the saints for just a minute. You know, I had a conversation with a friend this week. I'm sure that many of you in this room have had a similar conversation lately, if not this week, then recently, just about where we're at as a country right now. If you believe what you see on social media and in the news, then you believe that we're highly fragmented as people. We're divided as a country right now. And to many people, it feels like we're at a, at a point now where it's impossible to overcome. That this is just the way that it's going to be. Infighting, division, anger. We're fractured on race and politics, gender, sexuality, you name it. And it hasn't escaped the church either, has it? Churches are split on doctrine Churches are split on responses to social events, racial inequality, politics. But this division, church, just so you know, is nothing new. This is not new. Even if the iteration of it that we're seeing is a new expression of it. One of the most pervasive and saddening realities of the sinfulness of man is that for all of history, mankind has had an incredible ability to minimize the worth and value of other people. Incredible ability to marginalize others, to treat one another with contempt, to minimize the value of another human being. So if you're in Colossae or really anywhere else in the Roman Empire of this day, you're aware of the fact, when you look at society around you, that women are often treated like property. You're aware that people are... Many times so impoverished and hungry that they have to sell themselves as slaves to people or sell their children as slaves to other people and then are treated many times no better than livestock. If you live in Colossae at this time, you're aware that people from different nationalities and races are marginalized, treated incredibly poorly, murder is rampant, unwanted children are thrown out on the street, Those who are sick or incapable of caring for themselves are left in the outskirts of the city to die. Abuses of people are commonplace. And if you happen to be in a privileged position, you get to go about your life and pretend that none of that exists. So this is not just an epidemic that we're facing today. This This is true of history. Pick any historical era... And you'll find an iteration for that particular time that shows that people are being treated awfully. And that division is rampant. And that argumentation among people is, is all over the place. And so why do I bring that up? It's a total downer on a Sunday morning, right? We're trying to get through the sermon. We're trying to get through Colossians. Why do you bring that up? Because the testimony of the early church And one of the things that was so instrumental in providing a witness to Jesus was that in the church, the love for the saints erased dividing lines. It erased dividing lines. Like no other time in history, there was a group of people that were gathering together where it didn't matter whether you were rich or poor, you ate at the same table. Didn't matter whether you were a man or a woman, you were treated with equal value and equal dignity. You were served as a peer and an equal. The poor and the marginalized were loved and cared for. Children thrown out on the streets were adopted and brought into homes. Masters were told to esteem the slaves that worked for them. Children were not treated like property, murder, envy, strife, favoritism, division were exchanged for a command to love your neighbor as yourself. And it was such a shocking disparity with the world around them that people saw it and they couldn't look away. They saw it and they went, there's something unique about these people. There's something incredible here. The way that they love one another does not look like anything we've ever experienced. In a world that says, ignore those around you, be okay with those who are oppressed, treat those who are different than you as differently as you want to treat them, in the church, those lines disappeared. And so when Paul says, look, I've heard of the love that you have for the saints, he's saying there's a testimony that is flowing out of your church about the way that you live toward one another that is pronounced and meaningful and if people see it and they experience it, will be a testimony about the work of Jesus to save and redeem you. He's saying that, that your political beliefs, your race, your social status, your economic status, your dietary preferences, your schooling choices, all the stuff that the world wants to tell you to divide over and argue over this and align with other people against this, those things inside this place all become secondary and tertiary issues because Christ is first and foremost. It doesn't mean that we ignore those things or we ignore sin or we have this worldly definition of love which is really just a veil for unquestioning acceptance of anything. It just means that we understand that the love for the saints is that we have a proper order of understanding that our ultimate hope is in heaven and not in the things of this world. So we can look beyond appearances or status or other things that are temporal and see what we see in verse five which is that our hope, our marching orders is ultimately derived from the hope that we have laid up in heaven. So take a look at verse five there. We'll begin to wrap this up this morning. Verse five, it says this. Of this is hope laid up for you in heaven. You've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, Our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister to Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. What does that mean? We'll look at this briefly here and then we're done. What the Bible is saying to us here in these four verses, five verses, is that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that he died in our place for our sins so that we might be forgiven, is or does three things. One, points us to a future hope, two, it's unstoppable. And three, it's our ultimate source of truth. The first of those, our future hope, is that someday Christ will come again to make all things right. And that until he does, we don't have to fear death or judgment because Christ has given us an inheritance in heaven. We'll see that later on in chapter one. The gospel is unstoppable, it bears fruit where it's preached, it continues to bear fruit in the lives of people who cling fast to it. And finally, it's truth since you understood the gospel and the grace of God in truth. This is so helpful, especially in a church like the one in Colossae where people are being bombarded with beliefs. They're trying to pull them in different directions. Paul reminds them that the gospel is a lighthouse that cuts through the fog and illuminates the darkness. It shows us the true grace of God. It anchors us. It grounds us. It influences everything we do. And what better reminders before wrestling through issues of faith and practice for them and for us to be reminded that we don't have to question, church, where to find truth. We don't have to question where to anchor our hope because we have the undeniable, eternal source of truth at our disposal in the gospel of Jesus. So what's the big takeaway from that this morning, from this introduction that we have to Colossians? I think there's one big takeaway from this church, and it's simply this. We don't live in a neutral world. Sin is ever-present. There will always be a tendency to exchange the truth of God for a lie or mix the truth of God with worldliness so that we end up with something that may still look a little bit like Jesus, but has at its root something that ultimately serves selfish interests or worldly desires. And yet, even in these first eight verses of Colossians, we see the beginnings of something that we will see on full display throughout this book which is that in the face of these challenges, there is and will always be a singular answer for the people of God. And that's Christ. Christ above all. Christ as the source. Christ as the answer. The gospel of Christ, our hope. The word of Christ, our truth. So if you find yourself in a place this morning, unsure of hope, shaken by what's going on in the world around you, unsure of what to hope in, longing for something different, wanting to know what to count on in an age where there's so much that is uncertain and unreliable and divided and fragmented. The good news is that the answer is found in Christ and the truth of his gospel. We can cling to that above all things and never be disappointed. And I am excited for us to journey together through the book of Colossians and see that more and more week by week as we study together. Let's pray and we'll continue our time of worship.